All right, well, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I'll go ahead and get started. Make sure that's open for them. All right, ready for week three. Here we go. Um, are coming up on the first exam, so I've actually got that up on the board now. Um, first exam will be the 18th, barring anything really emergency that we get, get really delayed. Uh, we're on pretty good schedule for that. Uh, the thing due today is the solar observations. If you have a copy of your data sheet, you can give me that. Don't give me the original. Uh, if you have just the original and want me to make a copy of it for you, let me know during lab and I'll run and make a copy of it. I can run and make a copy of it while you're working on the lab. So I'm happy to do that for you. If not, you can submit it. Uh, there should be a submission place up for it on D2L. That one you can also email to me. Um, normally don't email me assignments uh, for credit, but that's one I don't, I'm not worried about the solar observation. So all I need to see is a copy of your data sheet um, at, with, with at least one successful observation. A blank data sheet doesn't do you, much, do you too much good. Um, homework I did go ahead and change to the 16th because I know I'm not going to get through chapters 3 and 4 between today and, tomorrow, today and Wednesday, uh, plus the fact that we're doing a lab today and a lab Wednesday since we missed the lab last week. So um, homework one, I did go ahead and extend to the 16th, so you've got one week to work on that. Uh, that pushes a little bit closer to the exam because the exam will be on the 18th, but I should be through everything by lecture on the 16th. I'll easily be through chapter four and into chapter five at that point. So then for the exam, you do have the review quizzes, which are available for extra credit. Those are up on D2L. Uh, you can take them. Remember the first time you take it is the important one. That's when you get the, that's when you have a chance for extra credit on it. It will give you one-tenth of a point for each point you get right. Which one you get right? So it's up to one point. It's not a lot, but over 13, I think, of these, it adds up to, you know, a percent in your final, it could add up to a percent in your final grade. So it's worth doing them. Even if you only get half of the questions right the first try, it's still worth doing them. You can then take them up until the time of the, until the exam time, which is 8.30 on September 18th, um, to review. So if you want to keep taking them to review, that's great. I will warn you, the review quizzes are based on the textbook, not the lectures. Doesn't mean I'm not, the, some of the material is the same, but what I mean is that there's more detail in them. There's some things that you might see in the review quizzes that if you look at chapter one or chapter two that we've covered, I'm not going over. That means you're not very likely to see that one on the exam. So just be, if you didn't see, if you didn't see, remember me talking about it, go back and review the lecture, look at the lecture slides. I'm going to be picking questions that I talked about more. In terms of how I do the, the way the review quizzes are, it's just a complete test bank. I'm taking the questions randomly. So I just don't want, if you see something that's a little out of whack there or something that he didn't talk about that at all, you're not very likely to see that one on the exam. So the exam uh, will be September 18th. I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, coming up as to how I'll split that up and give you a breakdown as to what that's going to, going to look like. And everybody is signed in. I've got seven and seven, so we should be all, all good for that. So any questions? Otherwise, we are doing lecture the first part today, and then we'll split up and do the lab for the last uh, 45 or 50 minutes. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and, nope, that's not what I wanted, that one. Come on, there we go. All right, well, let's go ahead and look at our picture for today then. Um, again, jumping ahead a little bit to what we'll talk about in the course, this is a galaxy known as M31 by its, uh, a catalog designation. Uh, the catalog is the Messier catalog, and that was an astronomer back in the 1700s who was looking for comets. That's not a comet, that's a galaxy, but he made his catalog of about 100 or so objects that could look like comets through a small telescope. So catalog for others, Looking at these, these are known objects. You don't need to sit there and watch it and see if it's going to be able to be moved, that if it is a comet, it was something that was not a comet, essentially. So it wouldn't have looked like this through his telescope. It would have looked more like a little fuzzy blob, maybe something more like that or even smaller. So it could have been something that would have been confused with a comet and then he didn't want to sit there and watch it again and again and again, so he made up this catalog, and this just happens to be the 31st uh, entry in it. 
We now know it as a distant galaxy, something we did not know even 100 years ago. The idea of a galaxy, the concept of a galaxy, is relatively recent, within the last 100 years. And in fact, just about 100 years ago, there was a big debate. Were galaxies like this? We solved spiral nebulae. Not quite as much detail as this, but we could see this would not be something we would not have been invisible in the early, early 1900s, late 1800s. We would have known it as what we call the spiral nebula, but there was a big discussion among astronomers as to whether they were nebulae within our own galaxy, part of our own galaxy, or if they were actually island universes, other galaxies out there. Well, we know the answer now. It's another galaxy outside of ours. But it was less than 100 years ago that we figured that out. And that was done by Edwin Hubble. He took some images of Andromeda, uh, very deep exposures back in the uh, 1920s, and found a certain type of variable star in them. Variable star, we'll go over a lot of this later on, but essentially there were, were ways he could determine the distance. These stars gave him a way to figure out the distance to this galaxy, and he found out that they, it was, they were much further away than it could possibly be for being part of our own galaxy. So here we get that nice kind of image of it, and this is actually also the most distant object that you can see with the naked eye. Yeah, if you go out and look for it, it won't look anything like this, but it is nicely visible in the fall if you know where to look in the sky. And you've got all the sorts of apps on your smartphone that right, you can point up to the sky and will show you where everything is. And you can actually, if you're in a pretty dark area, if you're right down here in the city, but if you get out of the city a little bit, you can see a small fuzzy patch there. And that's the Andromeda galaxy. You can actually see something without a telescope, without binoculars, that's two and a half million light years away. Most distant object you can see with your naked eye. Of course, there's many objects that are much, much further away than that. Alrighty, questions? Before we head on to chapter three, as I recall, we'd finished chapter two and we were ready to go with chapter three. So we're going to look at, I think we'd finished up with Galileo. We talked about, we talked about Copernicus and Galileo last time. Now we're going to kind of jump backwards a little bit in time. Uh, not horribly back, but we're going to go back a little bit earlier to Tycho and Kepler. Uh, Kepler lived about the same time as Galileo. Tycho was a little bit before. So these are the two astronomers that really did the work that set the basis for our understanding of how the planets move and to give us, you know, to put some more evidence to, to the Copernican idea that Galileo supported, that the Earth was actually moving and was just one of the now six planets known. So going back a little bit, since we haven't talked about this since a week, since it's been almost, been almost a week, um, some of the early ideas, again, the whole idea early on from the time of the Greeks up through into the time just before the time of Copernicus was that the universe is geocentric, Earth-centered. The Earth is the center of the universe. It seems like how things are. Seems like everything is geocentric. When you go out and look at the sky, it looks like we're at the center of everything. We know we're not now, but it, just, it is something that is intuitive. And the one thing that really helped with this was parallax. The Greeks knew about parallax. We talked about that last time. That if the Earth is moving, the stars should appear to shift their positions over the course of a year. It doesn't happen. Well, it does. They couldn't measure it. We couldn't measure it up through the 1400s when Copernicus gave us his ideas. We couldn't measure it at the 1600s with Galileo. We couldn't measure it into the 17 and even into the early 1800s. It was such a small angle to be able to measure. And then last time we talked about Copernicus and the idea of the heliocentric universe, that the Earth is a planet. That's not obvious. It may be today because you've learned it from, what, elementary school, that the Earth is one of the eight planets. But it's not something that's obvious just going, just going out there. And there were some problems with Copernicus's model. He did change one thing that Aristotle gave us. He changed where the Earth was. He didn't change everything. He still used circular orbits, and he still had all the planets moving at the same speed. And that meant that his, his model was no more accurate than the earlier one. So, of course, you have this brand new model, no more accurate. 
it's not going to be wildly accepted because you've got something you've been using for a thousand years. Why are you going to change if there's no reason to? Um, he also couldn't eliminate epicycles because he was stuck on circular orbits. He had to add small epicycles into it to make it fit the motions of the planets. And that kind of gets rid of one of the nice things about Copernicus's model was how simple it was. Nice, everything going around the sun, nice and simple. Not all sorts of weird circles upon circles. He had to add some of those back in. And that leads us to our first astronomer of this section, who was Tycho Brahe. Uh, he lived a little earlier than Galileo, and he was the last great observer before the invention of the telescope. So he observed, uh, observed with, the, uh, with his naked eye and recorded positions of the planets. He had some things like quadrants, you know, like a big, almost a big protractor to be able to measure angles and to estimate angles there. He gave us the most accurate observations we had ever had to that date. And he did this for decades. I mean, that was one of, that was what he was, um, he, that was what he was into, is recording all of these positions over and over every single night and getting very, very detailed observations. So extremely accurate. How accurate would have been generally about a tenth, a fifteenth the diameter of the full moon. Again, no other instruments. All you're doing is measuring the positions. That's not bad. Imagine the moon dividing it into about, about 15 spots, and you're getting, getting things to within one, one of those. That's pretty darn accurate, considering no other equipment is available, nothing else that you're using. You don't have photographs, right? We're, don't, photography hasn't been invented yet. You can't take pictures of the sky and measure things. You're only doing it in real time, recording it as it goes. So able to get us really accurate observations. And what he found was that his model, his observations, didn't fit with the geocentric model. So there were some problems. He didn't like the geocentric model because his observations weren't really fitting with that. He observed some things like a new star that appeared in the sky, called a supernova. We'll come back to those later in the class. An exploding star. Well, remember, Aristotle said everything in the heavens is perfect, it doesn't change. So when that happens, and it happens from time to time, all it is is some atmospheric effect. It's something, it's something part of the Earth. Well, remember parallax. He could measure parallax pretty accurately. If something is in the Earth's atmosphere, it's going to shift positions. So as he observed it over the course of a night, he ex would expect it to see positions, change position, if it was part of the Earth's atmosphere he could say for sure it was beyond the moon. How for much further, he couldn't measure because he couldn't measure the angles that accurately, but to his accuracy, he could not measure any parallax for it. And that should have been there if it was part of the Earth, something in our atmosphere. He also didn't like the heliocentric system for the same reason, he couldn't measure parallax. And he was the most accurate observer. If he couldn't measure parallax, maybe it didn't exist. So he could not get any uh, observations of parallax. We know now it was way too small of an angle for him to measure, but we didn't know that at the time. We didn't understand the immense distances involved. So because he didn't really like either of the two, he came up with his own model, which was something like this. Get, we're still before gravity, so when you see all sorts of odd orbits, we haven't gotten there yet. We're going to talk about gravity in the next section. This model actually works and works relatively well for determining the positions. He made it geocentric with the Earth at the center, but everything orbited the Sun, except for the Earth. So the Sun would orbit the Earth. It makes no sense. We know the Sun is many times bigger. How can the Sun possibly orbit the Earth? They didn't know that at the time. So the Sun would orbit the Earth, and all the planets would actually orbit around the Sun. This could work. Right. Not, not physically, we can't, you have to come up with some, some kind of physical law, but as a model to calculate the motions of the planets, it did work. And one of the things that it did, uh, that, it, that it did predict, remember he died in 1601, that's a little before Galileo made his observations. If this is how Venus moves around the sun, and the sun moves around the earth, Venus would go through a full cycle of phases. I think you remember, hopefully you remember last time, I gave you that as one of the pieces of evidence. That was one of the pieces of evidence that Venus had to orbit the sun. 
Well, he, he gave this before that. So he gave us this before that time that Venus was orbiting the sun. And could, his model, had he known, would have predicted that Venus did go through a complete cycle of phases. So while Galileo's observation of Venus threw out the, the uh, Ptolemaic model, the ancient one, we knew that the Venus could not orbit the Earth. It didn't throw out this model. It wasn't until later when we actually found that the Earth moved that we could differentiate between those two. So he kind of put everything together and gave us his own uh, model as well. Then he made all these observations. He recorded all these observations. But it was another astronomer who actually put everything together. And that was Johannes Kepler, who lived right about the same time as Galileo. So they were around at the same time. He was a mathematician. And he was the one who analyzed the data. And in fact, he was given the data of Mars to be able to analyze. Very fortunate that it was Mars, because Venus, he also had a lot of observations. Venus has an almost circular orbit. He wouldn't have been able to differentiate between Venus's orbit as being a circle and not being a circle. Mars's is elliptical enough that he was able to see the differences. So he analyzed all the data. He went through the data from Mars, plotted out the orbits and the orbits, all by hand, right? No computers, no calculators, nothing. I'll do all the calculations by hand and plot out what the orbits would look like. And he found that if he got rid of two things, he could explain the planetary motion better. And that was getting rid of circular orbits, and that was getting rid of uniform motion, that everything was moving at a constant speed. If you remember, those are the two, two of the things that Aristotle gave us a long time ago that had been the basis of planetary motion for over a thousand years, that everything moved in circles and at the same speeds. Got rid of that. So if we change that, then he could get a much better uh, observation, but much better observations. It was close as to how well he could determine this. It wasn't obvious because the orbits aren't super elliptical. And in fact, there are writings that, you know, he went back and forth. You know, was this, was the difference that he was seeing between the circle and the ellipse a matter of observational errors by Tycho? Or was it actually the difference in the orbits? And it was a very borderline case. I think, and I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head, but I think it was like five or six arc minutes, a measure of angle. And Tycho's words was measuring to about two or three. It wasn't a big difference. It wasn't like it was tremendous. So he went back and forth as to whether the errors were too much, but he had confidence in Tycho's observations as being accurate. And he was able to redo this and to give us what I'm going to go over on the next few slides as three laws of planetary motion, which I'm going to have you look at here and I'm going to have you look at for the uh, lab work in a little bit. So his first law of planetary motion, the orbits of the planets are not circles. They're ellipses. What is an ellipse? An ellipse is just a squashed circle. And in fact, a circle is an ellipse, but an ellipse isn't necessarily a circle. It's one of the like, like squares and rectangles. Um, so a circle is just a perfect form of an ellipse where an ellipse has two foci. If you move, imagine moving those closer and closer together, then it, turn, it will turn into a circle. The two fo for a circle, the two foci are together at the center, and that would be an example of a special case of an ellipse. So planets could orbit in circles, but in general, ellipses are more general. Uh, area. So the orbits of the planets are ellipses, and the sun is at one focus. The sun is not at the center here, but the sun is offset a little bit at one focus, and there's nothing at the other focus. I don't know if you remember, I'm not going to go back to last lecture slides, but I showed you, when I showed you Ptolemy's model, one of the things was the equant. The Earth wasn't at the center, the Earth was off-centered a little bit, and then things orbited around something opposite the side. He actually had an ellipse there. I mean, he had everything off-center, so he was getting the idea of an ellipse without actually making it an ellipse. It wasn't actually squashed. It was still a perfect circle, but he was getting some of this. So there was some knowledge of this before, just not, you know, that this was actually how things moved. So different parts of the ellipse. Uh, there's the two foci here and here. There are the two axes. There's the major axis is the long axis, which goes through the center. The, through the longest diameter, the longest uh, section of the ellipse, and then there's the minor axis that goes the other way, through the shortest portion. Um, the, 
We also will sometimes refer to, and you'll see in the lab, I'll talk about a semi-major axis. That just means half of the major axis. That goes from the center to one, major, one, one axis. Uh, semi-major axis is actually the average distance between the planet and the sun. So we'll sometimes refer to the semi-major axis. That's the dis distance between the planet and the sun. So you sometimes hear Earth is 93 million miles away from the sun. Well, that's its average distance. Sometimes it's a little more, sometimes it's a little bit less because it's an elliptical orbit. So sometimes you're going to be closer to the sun. Sometimes you're going to be a little bit further away. This diagram is greatly exaggerated for the planetary orbits. If they had been like this, the Greeks would have known that we orbited in ellipses. That would have been easily measurable. If I took this and put the orbit of Mars in a circle, you know, full screen, and a circle next to it, you'd see the very slightest deviation. It's not a lot. It's very close to being a circle. So, I mean, the Greeks weren't way out there with going with it because the orbit is really, really close to being a circle. Because you have to move these foci a good distance before it starts to see a significant squashing. So, if you have uh, an, an ellipse that oh, is only slightly squashed, you really can't tell the difference between it and a circle. Now, one of the terminology that we use is the eccentricity. It is a way of measuring how squashed the ellipse is. If you have a perfect ellipse, you have a circle, the eccentricity is zero. In that case, the two foci would be at the center and you'd have everything the same distance from the center. So that would be if it's perfect. As you squash it more and more, the eccentricity gets bigger and bigger, up to, but not quite hitting one. So 0 0.9, 0 0.99, 0 0.999, is an extremely flattened ellipse. We get some of these for comets, cometary orbits within the solar system. Would look extremely elliptical, and in fact, this wouldn't look that unusual. It would actually be you know, one type of comet. might give you something. Uh, a cometary orbit would look something like this. Uh, for ellipses, you cannot, have anything, you, cannot have one or, you cannot have anything one or greater. An eccentricity of one or more is actually an open orbit. It doesn't, it doesn't loop back around. If you've ever, eh, geometry, whatever, parabolas, a, para a parabola has an eccentricity of one. It, an object would come in at some point, come close to the sun and head back out. It would never come back again. And there's also hyperbolic orbits that come greater than one. So when we send a spacecraft out of the solar system, it's on one of those kind of orbits. It's on a parabolic or a hyperbolic orbit. That means it's not coming back. It has enough energy, enough velocity that it's never going to come back. So those are the eccentricities. Again, closer it gets to one, the more squashed that ellipse is. So that's his first law of planetary motion. His second law, I'm going to give you the statement and then explain it. First of all, it says that a line joining the planet and the sun sweeps out equal areas and equal intervals of time. What does that mean? Well, remember what he did. He took this, he took all of Tycho's data, he, plan, he plotted out the orbits based on all those information. So he could get a piece of paper there, he could graph out where the planet would have been at each time, and he would have had some kind of orbit like this. And what he noted was that if this time period was one month, and so was this one, and so was this one, that the area, shaded areas, were exactly the same. So that's, what he, that's how he found this. What does it really mean? It means that the planet is changing speed. His first law gets rid of the idea that everything is circles. His second law gets rid of the idea that things are moving at a constant speed. Because if it takes one month to move this portion of the orbit, then the planet has to be moving a lot slower. If it's moving a month here and a month here, it's got to be moving a lot faster. Well, with gravity, hopefully that makes sense, right? The closer you are to the sun, the faster you move. Further you are from the sun, gravitational force is a little less, so you're going to be moving a little bit slower. Newton, we'll look at these with Newton in the next section. But it was a way of, again, the, the statement is what he found. That's actually the formal statement of his law. But what it really means is that the planet is moving faster when it's close to the sun. We call that perihelion. It's moving slower when it's furthest from the sun, which is called aphelion. So those are just the distances. So right here is when the planet is closest to the sun. Way over here, the end there would be when it's furthest away from the sun. 
So his first two laws are really what overturned what Aristotle had given us. And then he came up with his third law. His third law is a little more mathematical. I can write it two ways there. I can write it out in words, or I can write it out as an equation. They both say exactly the same thing. So the orbital, the square of the orbital period of a planet is directly proportional to the cube of the semi-major axis of its orbit. Or P for the orbital period squared is equal to A, which we use for the semi-major axis, cubed. So how did he find this? Probably just trial and error, looking at various combinations of A and P and using different exponents. You know, he could have tried P cubed and A squared. He could have tried P and A cubed, or P, or P squared and A, or P squared and A squared. He probably tried all sorts of these things until he stumbled upon this one, which when you take this for the planets here, and you take A, the average distance, remember the semi-major axis is the average distance between the planet and the sun, and you cube that, and then you compare that, divide it by the square of the period, you find out that all of those are really close to one. So that means that these cubed are essentially the same number as these squared. That's telling us something about the, about the motions within there, and it's going to kind of lead into, and in fact, Newton can tell us how this works from his, uh, from his law of gravity. This one we come back to a lot. You'll hear it from time to time. You'll hear me mention it when we talk about stars, when we talk about galaxies, because in Newton's version that we'll look at, it's not quite as simple. It has an extra term in there. The mass is involved. This is how we determine masses. How do we figure out how, what the mass of a star is? Got no giant scale out there to weigh it. We have to find some other measures. We use gravity to essentially weigh the star or the galaxy. How do we know the mass of the galaxy? Well, we can do, we can use this to determine those masses. So we're gonna come back, you'll, you'll hear this one, you'll hear me refer to Kepler's third law from time to time over the course. What do they mean? Well, first of all, they were important because they overturned what Aristotle gave us. So for over a millennium, we had used circular orbits and uniform motion. Everybody used that from the Greeks, through the Middle Ages, in through Copernicus. Everybody was using circles and uniform motion to explain the planetary uh, motions. It got rid of that. It overturned all of that. What we don't have is any physical basis to the laws. Why? Why are the orbits elliptical? Why do the planets move faster when they're closer to the sun? I've, I've already jumped ahead and told you, right? Gravity. But we didn't know about gravity yet. We haven't gotten to Newton. That's the next section. Um, why does A cubed equal P squared? He doesn't tell you why. He just tells you this is what is. They were just based on the observations. And Newton is the one who's going to be able to tell us, to be able to show Kepler's laws and able to prove Kepler's laws and, in fact, make them more general from his law of gravitation that we'll look at. So it'll make them more general. Right now, as they stand, they're talking about objects orbiting the sun. He's talking about planets orbiting the sun. But in reality, they apply to everything. So they talk about things. You could talk about stars orbiting our galaxy. Well, thanks to Newton, Kepler's laws apply. We can know how Kepler's laws can apply, that orbits of stars going around the galaxy are ellipses, that they'll move faster when they're closer to the center of the galaxy, slower when they're further away. And that a cubed equals p squared, the important one, because Newton's version, that'll allow us to determine the masses. All right, so summarizing here, what we have, Tycho gave us all the observations. Kepler calculated, plotted them out, figured out the orbits, and gave us the three laws of planetary motion. And as I said, they're empirical. They were based just on observation. The physical understanding doesn't come quite yet. Not till the next slide, since we're going to jump out to Newton now, unless there are questions first. All right. Then we will jump out and talk about Newton a little bit in terms of the explanation. Why do things move the way they do? So going back a little bit, Galileo, not talking about Newton quite yet, talk about Galileo for a second. Galileo did studies of motion. He gave us ideas of inertia, that things that are moving want to keep moving, and that all objects fall at the same rate in a gravitational field. Right? So the story is that he took two balls up to the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa in Italy and dropped them 
iron ball and a wooden ball, very different weights, and that they fell at the same rate, or at least very close to the same rate. That's not something intuitive. If I take two objects and drop them of different masses, we know that the heavier one's going to fall quicker. Intuitively, we think the heavier the object, the faster it's going to fall. That's true if you're on Earth with an atmosphere. What causes a hammer and a feather to fall at different rates isn't gravity. It's the atmosphere. Right? The feather kind of floats down because it's got all that air resistance. The hammer, a little heavier, plows right through the air resistance and, land and will hit the ground. If we could do that in a vacuum, they'd fall at the same rate. And this is an example of this. This is a video clip I'm going to show here. This will... Come on. It played the last time. Come on. All right. Well, we will get it. We'll do it the other way. We'll do it this way. <laughs> so this is from the Apollo 15 mission to the moon back in the early 1970s. Um, try to get a little more volume on that. Or is that as loud as it? I guess that's as loud as this one goes. Ah. That one's turned way down. Is that better? Hammer over there, feather over there, hitting at the same time. Now, if I did that here in class, what happens, right? The feather just floats down because of the air. When you're up on the moon without an atmosphere, not with no gravity. Moon has gravity. One of the other things you might have noticed was how slow they fell. I mean, if I drop a hammer here, it doesn't fall that slow. Gravity is about one-sixth on the moon as it is here on Earth. So it's good things are going to fall slower. Not only are they falling at the same rate because of the lack of the atmosphere, but it's falling at a slower rate because of the lower gravity, not no gravity. Right? If there was no gravity and I let go of things, they just would sit there. They wouldn't move. There would be no force pulling them down. So there is gravity on the moon. They would just fall at a different rate. Could you do this on Jupiter somehow, which would be difficult with Jupiter's composition, but something with Jupiter's gravity, they'd fall a lot faster. Jupiter's gravity is a lot stronger than the Earth's. So the hammer and feather would still fall at the same rate, but they'd fall a lot faster. Or if you did it on some place like a little asteroid, much smaller than the moon, they'd fall even slower. So they fall at the same rate. What that rate is depends on the object, depends on the gravity of the object. Now, before I get on to Newton, I want to mention a couple of things here and talk about velocities and accelerations. Um, velocities and accelerations are what we call vectors. Vector just means it has a size, a magnitude, and a direction. So when we talk about speed, how fast something is moving, speed, is not, speed and velocity are two different things. You can be going 55 miles an hour. That's your speed. You can go be going 55 miles an hour east. That's your velocity. There's a difference between going 55 miles an hour east and 55 miles an hour west. Right? You're both going 55 miles an hour. The magnitude can be the same, but the directions can be different. An acceleration occurs any time a velocity changes. Now, we have our everyday conception of acceleration. Right? Get in the car, hit the gas pedal, you accelerate and you go faster. However, you also accelerate when you hit the brake. To a physicist, that's just another form of acceleration. One, you're speeding up. That's the one you're used to. The other, you're slowing down. Your velocity is changing. Your speed is getting less and less. It's a form, we call it what, deceleration? But it's just a form of acceleration that happens to be negative instead of positive. No difference between it. The other thing that we can do that can cause you to accelerate is change direction. 
Remember, it's a vector, meaning it has a magnitude and a direction. So if I'm going 55 miles an hour around in a circle, I'm accelerating. Even though my speed is staying the same, my velocity is constantly changing because I'm changing direction. So even if you imagine a circular orbit around the sun, the planet's accelerating. Circular orbit of the moon around, roughly circular orbit of the moon around the Earth. It's accelerating not because its velocity is changing so much. It is a little bit because of elliptical orbits, but because the direction is constantly changing. And that all kind of leads into gravity because what is causing this acceleration? In order to have an acceleration, you have to have some kind of force. That's one of the things Newton is going to give us. That in order to have an acceleration, there is some kind of force involved. And for orbits and things like that, it's the force of gravity. So we'll jump on to Newton here. Newton uh, lived from 1643. That's when Galileo died, if you remember. I'm not picking on, picking on the dates. I'm not going to test you on that or anything. But he was actually born the year Galileo died, and he lived till this early 1700s. Um, he gave us a couple different things. If you love math and you took calculus, he's the guy to blame. Uh, he actually was one of those who developed, had to develop and enhance calculus to solve some of the problems of motion and gravity. You couldn't solve it using geometry or algebra, which was, all, which was math at the time. We'd gotten up to that far. We hadn't developed calculus yet. He needed calculus to be able to solve how the gravitation actually works. We had to develop and enhance calculus in order to explain that. He gave us three laws of motion that we're going to talk about uh, in a minute and the universal law of gravitation. So let's look at his three laws of motion first. His first law is the law of inertia, which states, and I give you the formal statement there, an object at rest or in a state of uniform motion will continue that motion unless it's acted upon by an outside force. What that means is if something's standing still, it's going to stay standing still unless something happens to it. Right, so if I'm just standing here, I'm going to just stand here, and unless some force comes, someone comes in and pushes me, an earthquake happens and starts shaking, I'm not going to move. There has to be some external force. It could be you know, me pushing against the floor, the floor pushing against me, but something has to happen in order for things to move. But that, that, one is, that one makes common sense to us. The other one doesn't. Because it, it also says that an object in a state of uniform motion will continue unless it's act, acted upon by an outside force. So if I shove that across the table, it'll keep moving forever. It doesn't. Right? We, that, that is not everyday uh, experience because things stop. We know why, right? Friction of the table against that is going to slow it down. If this was an air hockey table and I took the puck and gave it a little nudge, it would slide all the way across because friction is mostly eliminated. It would go all the way across until it hit the other side. So that one is not quite as, as uh, everyday uh, point of view that you get. Example of this, I've given a little bit here, but would be riding in a car. So you're driving down the road, you have to slam on your brakes, Right? Car stops, you lunge forward. Why? You were in a state of uniform motion in the car. The car stopped, you didn't want to, so until your seatbelt restrains you, 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 you keep going forward. Um, you can also do it the other way, although it doesn't work as well with a car unless you've got a really heavy foot accelerating out of the lights. You've got to really have to feel yourself pushing back. A roller coaster works a little better. If you like roller coasters and you do the ones that like to launch you out, well, you're pushed back. You're pushed back into the seat as the roller coaster accelerates forward very rapidly. You were at rest. You wanted to stay at rest, and you will until some force acts on you. So you accelerate the roller coaster car, but it takes a second for it to push you forward as well to get you actually moving. So his first law just really says that things that are moving are going to keep moving, and things that are staying still are going to remain staying still. His second law, just like the other one, I wrote it in equations and I wrote the whole thing out in words as well. So it's sometimes commonly known as F equals MA. The force is equal to the mass times the acceleration. If you want to write it out in words, the acceleration of a body is proportional to and in the same direction as the net force acting upon it and inversely proportional to the mass of the object. That's what that equation says. An example of this would be trying to move something. Car breaks down if you've got a small car. 
and it breaks down and you need to move it and put it in neutral and you can, unless you're on a hill, imagine you're on a flat surface, you can usually get it moving uh, pretty well. Um, if you're a semi-truck driver, that's not going to happen, right? Even if you break down on a, on a nice straight stretch, you're not going to get that thing moving, right? Unless you're incredibly strong, right? What do they do, those Ironman or whatever competitions where, they, where people can act? I mean, you can imagine what it would take to get that thing moving. Um, but the whole idea is, you know, what, what's the difference between the two? I can apply the same force. You can apply the same force. The force is the same. The difference is the mass. So with the same force being applied, the acceleration, if we divide by a small mass, acceleration is going to be large. We can move that little car. We can't move that big truck. Acceleration trying to move that truck, the force is going to be, the force, even though we're applying the same force, the mass is so much larger than the acceleration is going to be tiny. We get the same thing in the solar system. The force with which the Earth pulls on the moon and the moon pulls on the Earth is exactly the same. Moon pulls on the Earth exactly as hard as the Earth pulls on the moon. We'll talk about that in a minute when I get to gravity. Why does the moon orbit the Earth and not the Earth orbit the moon? Mass. Earth is a lot more massive, so its acceleration is a lot less. It is moving. Earth is moving in a small orbit around a common center of mass of the Earth and Moon. But the Moon, being a lot lighter, moves, moves around. Okay, so jump onto the third law so I have a little time to get into gravity before we switch to lab today. Um, third law is action and reaction. Probably heard this one at some point. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. This is how we launch a rocket. Right, you ever watched the big rockets being launched? About 90% of it, 80, 90% of it is fuel. And that's the fuel is being expelled. The gas is being expelled out at a very high speed, out one direction, pushes the rest of it up. So it pushes the, launches the rocket upward. And it's just an example of action and reaction. If you push in one direction, it's going to move in the other. Things are going to move in the other, in the other direction. Um, it works all over the place, right? The floor is doing this to me right now. I'm standing on the floor. Gravity is pulling me down, so I'm pushing with the force on the floor. The floor has to push back with me with the same force because I'm not moving. If, I were, if, if the floor were not pushing up back at me strong enough, right? If I was in a very weak floor, you know, an old wooden floor that's very wobbly, I'd be falling through into the basement here because my force would be pushing down too much. So the floor knows exactly how high, how hard to push back up to be able to balance things, to keep things from moving. When you have an unbalanced force, like launching a rocket, you can throw more fuel out, you can put more energy going one direction, and that causes the rocket to launch up in the other direction. So his three laws of motion are very general. They apply to essentially anything. So they're everywhere in the universe. You know, they don't say things like, planets in the sun, the orbits of the planets uh, that uh, Kepler talked about. His apply to anything, anywhere in the universe. His other one is also another universal law, and it's a universal law of gravitation. Again, I've given it to you in words there and an equation here. What his law says is that the gravitational attraction of any two bodies is proportional to the product of their masses, multiply them together, and inversely proportional, in other words, divide by the square of their distance. G here is just a gravitational constant. It's just a constant. So once we determine that, all we need to know is the masses of the two objects and their distance. And we say it's universal because it applies to any two objects in the universe with mass. I pull on the moon, the moon pulls on me. Put my mass in there, the moon's mass, how far away are we? And you can calculate that force. They're exactly the same. Why are they exactly the same? Well, going back to uh, some mathematical concepts, remember if you multiply two numbers, it doesn't matter which order I multiply them. Two times three is three times two. They're both the same answer. So if this is the mass of me and the mass of the Earth, well, it doesn't matter if it's the mass of the Earth and the mass of me. I'm going to get the same answer. So the forces are always exactly the same. The differences would then be in the accelerations because the force is the same, but masses are going to be different. So every object pulling on every other object in the uh, universe. 
And that means, you know, I'm pulling on the Andromeda galaxy. It's a minuscule force compared to other forces pulling on it, but it is, but it is there. But there's a gravitational force between any two objects in the universe. Can make things very complex when you want to try to figure out how things work in the universe and you want to calculate motions in the solar system. Well, you don't just look at the sun and the earth. Right? That would do that tell you the Earth's orbit, or do we have to take Jupiter into account? Jupiter's pulling on the Earth. There's a force between Jupiter and the Earth. Smaller than the sun's, but it might be important in some cases. So if you really want to calculate things in detail, you've got to look at essentially every single object that would be important there. It's also always an attractive force. As far as we know, there's no anti-gravity. There's no gravitational force. There's no type of mass that repels other mass. We have antimatter, but antimatter and matter still attract under gravity. They don't repel each other. So, and that's different than a lot of other forces, electrical charges. Right? Positive charges repel, positive and negative attract each other. As far as we know, there is no type of matter that does that. So it's always an attractive force, always trying to pull things together. So some examples of it, some things that you can look at. Um, what happens to the gravitational force? And I should have copied that over here to have the equation here. Um, but if we double the mass of one of the objects. So first, if we double the mass, I'm going to go back here until I can remember to copy that over after. If we double one of these masses, if this gets twice as big but everything else stays the same, the force will be how many times larger? Just doubling one number. Ten times larger? Two? Don't overthink. This can be twice as large. We double one number, it's going to be twice as much the force. So the force would increase. If we double the mass of one of the objects, it's going to be twice the, twice the force. If we double the mass of both objects, again, going back and forth, we double this mass. This is two times bigger, and this is two times bigger. Two times two is four. It's going to be four times the force. So if you double the mass of the sun, you double the mass of the earth, the force between them is going to go up by four times. Now the distances change a little more, a um, little differently if we, for example, triple the distance between the objects, put the earth further away from the sun. Oops, backwards. What happens to the force? Well, nothing in the top changes. G is a constant. We didn't change the masses, but we did change the distance. So if distance is three times larger, not one-third, because the distance is squared. Three times three is nine, one-ninth. So things further away are going to have a sig The further away you get, the force drops very rapidly. Or conversely, the closer you get, if you bring them four times closer together, I'm determined to go that way, stays all the same. Four times four squared is going to be 16, 16 times stronger if you bring things four times closer to the sun or to the moon or to the earth or to you, right? You have a gravitational force against, everything, against anything. Of course, if you put your mass and the mass in there, the gravitational force is actually incredibly tiny. So, got time. Let me finish up here and then I'll uh, save the last section of this for next time. Uh, but Newton also revises Kepler's third law. He revised all of the laws, his first and his second. He gave us a little more physical meaning, a physical understanding to them. But Kepler gave us P squared is equal to A cubed. Newton revised it to give us, in general cases, that P squared equals A cubed, but P squared has to be multiplied by the sum of the masses. There's actually some constants that go in there if you want to really delve into it. But for what we need to worry about, this is what works. And this works for any object as long as you measure things in certain units. If you measure the distance in astronomical units, average distance of the Earth to the Sun. If you measure the period in years, that's what Kepler did, right? So one squared equals one cubed. One squared is one, one cubed is one, one equals one, works out perfectly. So if we do this for Newton's version, then P squared is still one, A cubed is one, 
So that means the sum of the masses is 1. What we measure in, in terms of measuring stars, we don't measure the masses in grams. 2 times 10 to the 33rd grams, massive number we don't want to deal with. We measure them in solar masses. We compare them to the sun. So the sun is one solar mass. By definition, that is the mass of the sun. And when we talk about stars, we'll compare them in terms of mass of the sun. This one is 10 times the mass of the sun. This one is half the mass of the sun. So that's the mass of this. How about the mass of the Earth? Well, if you take the mass of the sun and add the mass of the Earth, you get the mass of the sun. Because the Earth's mass is so tiny by comparison, it's negligible. It's like adding a speck of dust to you, right? Did your mass just technically change? Yeah. Does it matter? No. Are you going to be able to measure it in anything, any kind of any way? No, you're not going to. If you go get on a scale, you're still going to have the same weight that you had before. You know, adding one speck of dust, that's essentially what you're doing with the Earth and the Sun. So really, it's just the mass of the Sun. Now, that matters when we start talking about stars because you might get cases where this star was two solar masses and this one was three solar masses. And you can't just ignore one. But if you're looking at a star and a planet, or in most cases a planet and a moon, you're really only looking at the mass of the central object. And that's what gives us the way to determine a mass. If we can measure an orbital period, if we can measure a distance, then we can determine the mass of the object. So it gives us a way to be able to determine the masses. And we're going to look at that. I mean, I'm not going to use it in great detail, but you will see it when we talk about stars. I'll talk about here's how we can get the masses. We talk about galaxies. Here's one way we can get masses of galaxies. So finishing up here, and I'll go ahead and stop with this and go ahead and let you work on the lab. Um, we talked about all objects falling at the same rate in a gravitational field, regardless of mass. So fall at one rate here on the Earth, fall at a different rate on the moon because the, gra the amount of gravity is different. And we talked about Newton's three laws of motion and law of universal gravitation. And then what I'll talk about next time is I'll talk a little bit about orbital motion and then we'll jump out to chapter four and look at uh, the Earth. I think we go into the moon and phases and eclipses and all of that kind of stuff we'll talk about next time. So question, questions.